This is Mike Bonamo. Welcome to another edition of Fight the Fate. Brian Davies. Yep. Sean Kleins. Hello. Are we ready for this shit? I don't know. I don't know if America's <laughs> ready. I hope you guys enjoyed the Churchill series, but we are on to bigger and better things. I think we all studied more for this than anything. Yeah. Because yeah. we I have two pages of notes. Brian's got like five. We have like a the thousand script, six pages. pages. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> touchy subject. Okay, <laughs> we are jumping into Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. But what to, to tell the story of the Black Panthers, <laughs> we must first, for us three white dudes doing a podcast <laughs> uh, about anything black, we can't make ourselves African-American, but we can paint you a story from history. So it's 1960s. You're a black American. Black communities witness the return of uh, soldiers from World War II, giving their lives and their blood for America's freedom and the freedom of Europe, only to return to a segregated America. Pretty shitty, right? Then being asked later in the 60s to, being, to fight for the white man's war against the quote-unquote yellow man, quoting, uh, loosely paraphrasing Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali didn't want to go to war. Yeah, he lost his boxing boxing license and everything. He lost fucking everything. Yeah, over like protesting <clears throat> Vietnam War, and it's a great video, and he makes fucking great points. World War Two, they had the double V campaign, and that kind of like kickstarted the the civil rights movement in a way. You know, it, it was always there, but it like rekindled it a bit. Mm. And the double V was victory abroad, but victory at home too. Like uh, FDR re- loosened restrictions for like federal employment for uh, African Americans to work in like the arms industry, mm-hmm. and they wanted to not just be labor battalions. Like uh, a lot of African Americans built a road in Alaska to like connect the supply lines for like the Pacific campaign, and they actively wanted to like participate in the war. Yeah, and they want to do something. Yeah, so like that that led to this and. That was more of like, we want to uh, participate in the system. We want to contribute, show that we're good American citizens. And then they kind of didn't see the results they wanted right away. So they're like, maybe there's other ways we can do this. Mm. So going all the way back, I mean, when people wanted people for war, that's what they would dip into. They're like, all right, you can fight for us now. Yeah. But as soon as they get back, it's back to normal. The the U.S. color troops were actually like, all of the African Americans that are recruited for the Union Army was bigger than the uh, largest army of the Confederates. The, not the Potomac. Probably something North, The Army of Northern Virginia was their biggest army. Mm-hmm. And if you took all the colored troops, they outnumbered them. Yeah. Like, the, the, arguably, slaves freed themselves that way. So uh, after years of violence towards uh, civil rights activists and marches for racial inequality, or to end racial inequality, the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1960 were passed. 60 dealt with uh, inequality and intimidation of voting booths and the penalties within, like for like intimidating people and not having like black people being encouraged or discouraged to vote. And 64, uh, the segregation in public spaces. In many parts of the country, these uh, these acts were not enforced at all. So you're mad, right? Like yeah. uh, your your father just fought in World War Two. You saw him give his blood and shit for his country. And he's not honored. And he's just back to segregation. So Malcolm Little, son of Marcus Garvey, a civil rights activist who was killed in a hit and run that was suspected to be committed by a member of the Klan, right? 
which uh, left his family in extreme poverty, which, you know, you do what you got to do in poverty. And Malcolm uh, ended up committing a robbery that he got sentenced to prison for. And that's where he is introduced to the nation of Islam. He saw that the marches were having like no effect. Nothing changed. The Civil Rights Act is passed. Nothing really changes. Mm -hmm. And so like he's fucking pissed, you know, as like I think most of us can understand he would be. And so, understandably angry, Malcolm starts giving speeches, uplifting African Americans, but also preaching about white devils and the end of the white race. That peaceful protests had gotten them nowhere, and uh, they must take up arms to end the oppression. Quote, unquote, the ballot or the bullet is what he's famous for saying, and the Black Panthers would take that in stride. In February of that year, Malcolm, uh, of 1965, Malcolm is assassinated, and in 19- August 1965, the Watts riots happen. Basically, uh, I forget this dude's name, and uh, I don't mean to disrespect, I just forget. I did a lot of research for this. A guy got pulled over for drunk driving. Mm-hmm. His brother goes, they're pretty much outside their neighborhood. His brother gets out of the car while he's getting pulled over, mm-hmm. which is fine, which is like crazy. Like, you know, you can't leave the fucking vehicle today. Gets I out, get, mi- I made that mistake once. <laughs> gets out, gets his mom, you know, and his mom's actually yelling at the dude for drunk driving, drinking and driving. Yeah. The two white officers, one of them pulls out a shotgun just for that that reason's never really clarified uh yeah. fists fly neighbors go neighbors come in people start seeing what's happening fucking they start trucking shit at the officers um it's at one point like it's alleged that one of the white officers kicked a pregnant black female people are fucking pissed off thus starts the watts riots and so in 1966 that's where i'm gonna jump in yeah. that's where i've started <laughs> 1966 the black panther party originally known as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, was a revolutionary party founded by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in Oakland, California, 1966. Well, being around for only 16 years, this group left a mark on this nation that will always be remembered. The major practice was to have armed citizens monitor the movements of Oakland Police Department or simply cop watch. (laughs) Yep. Protecting African Americans against police brutality was going to get done whether it meant bloodshed or not. I don't think any of us want to go down the thin blue line or the Black Lives Matter route, but, like, you can look up the statistics um, of, like, uh, I think it was 1940s Chicago Mm. where, like, Al Capone's running shit. But yet, uh, black people make up 6% of the population, but yeah. make up 30% of the incarcerated population of Chicago, yeah. and 34% of unarmed people shot by the police. You know, so police brutality is a fucking serious issue at this time. Yeah, I didn't realize how serious it was. Like, when I started <laughs> researching this, yeah. I'm like, wow, this, like, I'm like, I'm going to write this thing straight down the middle. But by the yeah. end, I'm just like, Fuck this. This is insane. It, when you like when you dig into the story, like you can't help but feel for these people and yeah, understand you, where they're you coming have from. To pick. Yeah. Like, like the people that are supposed to serve and protect are fucking killing you. Yeah, at a disproportionate rate. rate. Yeah. Well, starting with the case Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, the US Supreme Court had a unanimous ruling at nine to O that racial segregation in public schools violated the 14th Amendment rights. Yeah, the, the 14th Amendment is actually one of my favorites because it just says everyone's equal under the uh, letter of the law. So basically nobody could be discriminated against according to federal law. Because at this time, 
the Constitution, the Bill of Rights in the 60s is thought of as a compact between the people and the federal government. It wasn't until Gideon v. Florida, I think, or Gideon v. Wainwright, that they actually extended the Bill of Rights to state. It's a compact between the states and the people as well. So even before this, like the Second Amendment's not ironclad that it it uh, is a compact between but the states and people. But we wrote it down. Yeah, we wrote it down. <laughs> well, American law is still, you know, being made. This, we've only been around for two hundred some years, so yeah. And but, you have to wait till something's challenged to actually cement it into a decision, and then it becomes, you know, a ruling. Yeah, but this was a huge deal. People thought this fucked up system was changing in America. Sadly, African Americans continued to suffer. The streets were filled with poverty, poor living conditions, high unemployment rates, chronic health issues, and violence. And a year after its creation, Bobby Seale led a small group of Panthers armed to the teeth into the California State Legislature in Sacramento. Claiming their Second Amendment rights, they just wanted to protest the Mulford Act, which repealed a law allowing public carrying of loaded firearms. So today it would be called like open carry. So if you have like a pistol on your hip or you have like a rifle on your back, that's open carry as opposed to concealed carry. And this kind of started uh, California on its like strict gun control. And this was enacted by Reagan. Mm. And he like famously said when he was trying to pass the actor? this. Yeah. Well, Damn. later he was the governor of California. <laughs> California was a Republican stronghold at this time, especially like Southern California, like Orange County was like the the epicenter of like Republican caucus in California. Mm. But Reagan mm. passed this, and he famously said like no uh, righteous citizen. I- I'm paraphrasing a bit. Yeah. No righteous citizen would have the need to walk around with a loaded gun. Why? Well, because he wanted to pass the Mulford Act, because that, that banned the Panthers from uh, carrying loaded uh, shotguns and rifles and three fifty seven magnums. They're just going Like hunting, they did in Sacramento. <laughs> what, we can't hunt animals anymore? Well, that... the Black Panthers kind of like started the idea that you need to be armed to defend yourself against a tyrannical government. And they were one of the good examples of that because the government kind of forgot about them. If you look at the timeline, it is it plays out very much that it looks very much against like revolutionary African Americans, yeah, uh, carrying <laughs> weapons, arming themselves against the police, um, against police brutality, and yeah, it just it, it seems very. You can see from their perspective why they would think it was against them. Yeah, and this is kind of my own bent to like the Black Panther ideology, but the schools weren't working for them. They're you know the police generally weren't working for them. So they made their own structures. Like, they had their own health clinics. They had their own food programs to help yeah. people. And then they armed themselves. They had their own patrols in their own communities. Yeah. And that's what it started. This is in Oakland that started with the cop watching and stuff. So, Yeah. And uh, the other founder, Huey Newton, had already been convicted of assault with a deadly weapon after stabbing a man in 64. When he was finally convicted in early 1967... He served six months in prison. Out celebrating his release, that party did not last long. Newton and his friend were pulled over by Officer John Frey, an Oakland police officer. When Frey saw who he had just pulled over, he immediately called for backup. When the second officer got there, they attempted to detain Huey. They pulled him out of the car and... And no one really knows the truth about what happened next. 
Some say Frey took the first shot. Others say Newton grabbed Frey's gun during the struggle, shot both officers and himself in the stomach. Within an hour, Officer Frey was dead from four gunshots. The other officer had three gunshots and was left in critical condition. Huey woke up in the hospital handcuffed to the bed as police informed him he was a murderer. A year later, he was sentenced from 2 to 15 years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. In 1970, <laughs> the California Appellate Court reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial. After two hung juries, the prosecutors decided that they would drop the charges. This was a crazy one, uh, obviously for everything going on, but yeah. uh, Huey's defense was a previous Supreme Court case which uh, the judge ruled in favor of a person who, with, uh, with firearms, defended himself from an unlawful arrest. Yeah, I think I know the case in, in New York. I forget the guy's name, too, but... Do you remember the the wire? Yeah, the one guy that like killed other drug dealers and robbed them. Omar. Yeah, yeah. The the, the guy in New York is loosely based on Omar. That's crazy. Because th- this guy in real life, uh, he defended himself against six cops that were trying to uh, get him, and he I think he killed five of them. And it was ruled in self defense because there was evidence later on that was found out that the cops were corrupt. They were killing drug dealers too and taking Damn. taking their drugs and the money. Mm-hmm. And they were going to kill him and take his ill-gotten gains from the other drug dealers. Yeah, just a little history nugget I had never fucking heard of before. Yeah. <laughs> well, Newton always said after that, when he would get interviewed, he said the cops were shooting in each other's direction. That's why they were hit so many times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but still, when you, I'm surprised that that case, he only got 2 to 15 years like as a sentence at first. Well, the 90s like ratcheted up conviction lengths. But that seems not like nothing to me I, for something like that. Well, okay, th- I'm getting a little deep into this, but uh, voluntary manslaughter is different than first-degree murder. I'm surprised he didn't get first-degree murder just because they were cops. Well, voluntary, I think, is below even third-degree because first-degree, you have to have malice. You have to have planned out. Mm. Like, you, someone who would ambush a cop and kill Premeditated. Them, that's first-degree murder. Yeah. Someone that got in a scuffle and the gun went off and it's kind of hazy what happened, that's voluntary manslaughter. That's, and it's a lot lower of a charge. Well, no matter the viewpoint, there's good and bad sides to everything. The Black Panthers were seen as heroes in their respective towns. They launched more than 35 survival programs and took care of their communities by providing education, legal aid, tuberculosis testing, transportation, a free ambulance service, and free shoes for poor people no matter what color they were. Beautiful. The Black Panthers weren't just about like helping their race. They actually did want to help people in their larger community. Mm-hmm. Like generally Chicago, poor people, and like poor people in Oakland. Because there's, there's more than just black people in Oakland. Like, so they wanted to help their neighbors too. Because if, you, if your neighbor's succeeding, they can come to your shop and spend money. Like it's all, you got to help each other out. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that's the basic level of how the black panther started Mm -hmm. but we just had to lay that down to get into who fred hampton was he was just a young boy from chicago suburbs that went on to become the chairman of the illinois chapter of the black panther party 
And the boy's parents just moved from Louisiana to work at the Argo Starch Company. And on August 30th, 1948, Fred Hampton was born. Now, growing up, Fred was nasty in athletics. He schooled all these little Caucasian <laughs> boys in any sport he chose. But he especially loved baseball and hoped that one day he could play center field for the New York Yankees. Now, I don't know if he was actually playing against Caucasian boys. What do you? Well, the Chicago suburbs is a lot of like uh, Polish people. So and, there was a couple Caucasians he was playing. So he was really probably. dominating. Yeah, <laughs> he was probably. dominating them. Yeah, I mean, Polish people aren't known for their <laughs> uh, their uh, athletic prowess. You want me to put ball in hole? Yeah, they're just fucking round. Like, I'm little... very good with stucco. <laughs> but like, uh, it wasn't uncommon for uh, African Americans to leave the South at this time because obviously Jim Crow and all that mm. shit. But they didn't have good employment opportunities. So they would go to like Philadelphia chicago industrial towns because unions weren't bastions of progressive ideology like just hiring anybody but they needed tons of labor and african-americans were willing to come so they did hire them at higher rates oh, than the, other jobs the other stat that i forgot that's important is uh it was essentially like the average white family brought in 80 percent more income than the average black family yeah oh it was bad in them streets dude well this is the time of redlining, too, and other uh, housing practices. Like, my own family came from uh, southwest Philadelphia, mm. which is predominantly Irish and, I think, somewhat Italian. And a lot of real estate people would come in, tell the white people, a lot of black people are going to move to your neighborhood, and it's going to decrease your real estate value. So just sell to us at a really—just sell so you can get out of here and get to the suburbs, so you can, mm. you know, go to a suburban school with your kids. And— they would sell their houses at really low rates because they were kind of scared because yeah. that's the mindset of people back then. And then these people that bought these houses, these developers, would then sell it to African-Americans. Mm. And they would pocket the difference. Because yeah. the houses were worth a lot more than the white families were paying for it. Mm. So not only did like African-Americans suffer from this shit, other people suffered too. And it was all like because of their own unconscious bias. Like mm -hmm. They manipulated them. Oh, academics came natural to Fred. He was always very smart and graduated with honors from Proviso East High School <laughs> in 66. <laughs> Deciding to put his baseball aspirations on hold, he enrolled in uh, Triton Junior College to major in pre-law. The audience couldn't see, but you did do like an Italian oh, play with your hand. Oh, I did Proviso. <laughs> Uh, every day he saw police, uh, police brutality, people bloodied and beaten in the streets. Hampton decided that it was his duty to learn the law so he could use it as a shield to protect his community. And he, he started like a precursor to the cop patrols this time because if someone got pulled over, he would grab like other people on the street to witness it, like to make sure the cop had probable cause. He wasn't violating the Fourth Amendment rights. Because under the 14th Amendment, everybody has equal protection under the law. So all all the stuff that would apply to somebody else applies to them, too. Mm -hmm. And that's what Fred Hampton's trying to do. Like, he's trying to make us, the U.S. government, stay to the Constitution. So he much. would have been out there with a cell phone. 
like recording everything. Well, they didn't have cell phones. I the, know, but I'm so saying, he was like, grabbing everybody around. Maybe he had a, maybe he had a Kodak. I don't like, know. He would have <laughs> had a camera at all times. He would grab those yeah. guys that do the caricature art on yeah. the streets. Like draw this, <laughs> but it's all wonky and they can't really use it. <laughs> Yeah, and while still in college, he got involved with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The Black Panther Party was reaching its peak in national attention, and Fred helped gather 500 members for the NAACP's youth group. And he he got into the Black Panthers because he admired their 10-point plan. He saw that the future of his people could finally get a foothold. Now, I have the 10 points right here. Should we go through them a little bit, or? Yeah. I mean, they're basic, they're like common, like basic thought. Uh, Number one is we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Two, we want full employment for our people. Three, we want an end to robbery by the white man and our black, of our black community. Four, we want decent housing, fit for shelter of human beings. Five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in present day society. Six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. And ten, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. The Black Panthers were loosely influenced by Maoist uh, communist ideology, too. So you can see that somewhat in here. Like, some of this is like we want the Constitution to be actually, like, enforced. But some of it's, uh, like, bread. That's obviously from communist uh, literature. Oh, full employment. That was like in the Soviet Union, if you couldn't find a job, they, the government would give you a job. Democratic Party wants to kind of do that today. They want to have full employment. Well, the only one I don't understand is being exempt from military service. Well, the Vietnam War is ramping up at this time, and there was a belief that uh, African Americans were drafted more often, and they were killed on the battlefield more often. They were kind of used as, like, uh, cannon fodder. Uh, I've looked at statistics, and it doesn't seem like they were killed disproportionately compared to white people. And other races. Yeah. But they were drafted more often because even at this time during the draft, there was ways to get out of it if you had money. If you went to college, you were exempt from it. If you knew a good enough doctor that could write you a good enough note, you could get out of it. Yeah. But like, that, like some people we know. That one still doesn't make sense to me, though. Like, you want everything to be equal. You want to be an equal man, but you don't want to get drafted now. Yeah. You don't want to, you, you don't want to do military service, but you live here. Yeah. It, do, it does make sense because the, the draft is ridiculous because it, it presumes that the government owns your children and owns your labor, too. Like, that kind of goes against, like, America. the 13th Amendment pretty much. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, so you own ever, all of my labor for two years? That's what are you going to do, dude? You know? I'd rather—I like the current system where it's voluntary. 
Oh, uh, yeah. It's way, <laughs> I don't want the draft again. I'm on. I'm yeah. <laughs> that was well, it. You're over 26, right? Yeah. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get drafted. <laughs> you're good until we're not good. Yeah. We're yeah. Uh, bump that up to oh, 32 still real quick. Drafting like 40 year olds if we get in a world war. Whenever they institute the draft, it's usually uh, men with children and uh, men that are married that don't get drafted first, but then they usually like nix that. I'm about to go get my girl pregnant right now. <laughs> like the first year of World War II, they're like, "Oh, married men don't have to go." I'm about to get my. And then they're like, pregnant. "No, you have to go. You can, you can impregnate yourself." I know. <laughs> I tried it. I'm really backed up. Well, <laughs> this is all these ten points. That's what had Fred sold. He joined the party and relocated to downtown Chicago in 1967, making an impact right away. He was tasked with getting rival street gangs in the area to take a non-aggression pact. So have both you guys ever seen the movie The Warriors? Yeah. Remember yeah, that yeah. one character, Cyrus? Can you dig it? Yeah. <laughs> Fred Hampton kind of reminds me of him because like, he was trying to say, like, we should just band together because yeah. we outnumber the cops and everything mm. like that. Can you dig it? <laughs> and like you said earlier, helping the poor was very important to him. He started a multiracial alliance between the Panthers, the Young Patriots organization, and the Young Lords. Now, the the Young Patriots, uh, those were white. They were white poor, right? So it wasn't just African Americans that were leaving the South because poor whites had, like, similar literacy rates and similar rates of unemployment. And and a lot of them were sharecroppers after the 50s. So it's not— totally comparable but yeah they were poor and disadvantaged as well and they left the south to go to the north to work those union jobs too and a lot of them went to chicago and they're from like west virginia alabama because there was not a lot of industry down there Mm -hmm. and they went to to chicago as well and they faced similar but not like to the same degree of housing discrimination that was it because of their accent yeah like hey boy yeah it's like yo Get the fuck out of here. So they were maligned and they were poor as well. You know, not to the same degree, but... And they actually wore, like, Confederate flags patches on their jeans. Yeah. And there's tons of photos of, like, Fred Hampton and other uh, Black Panther leaders sitting with the young patriots. And there's, like, Confederate flags. And they're wearing... But, like... Yeah. So being... It's very weird. Being in Chicago, when they see the Confederate flags, what are they thinking? Oh, the people in Chicago? Yeah. Like, was... Oh, they probably don't like it <laughs> so they're just because they're thing. yeah their ancestors fall for the union that's mm. what i mean I, I was chicago were they split or were they no. they were all union no the mayor of new york actually wanted to secede from the union like political oh, elites in new york didn't like that's a whole nother episode didn't, didn't like the union because they were getting drafted but mm. chicago was one of the strongest support bases for the union well growing up all i knew about the black panthers was violence Mm-hmm. I was yeah. taught violence. I wasn't taught anything else. And the example of this stuff comes from textbooks like Holt McDougall's The Americans did its best to erase any positive attributes that the Panthers took part in. Now, creator Huey Newton came out swinging with some quotes. We realize that this country has become very rich upon slavery and that slavery is capitalism and in the extreme. We have two evils to fight, capitalism and racism. We must destroy both. Now, Newton even made members read 10 books that represented black liberation and socialism. Change is a scary thing. 
The world was looking for a, a way to destroy this movement. And using communist phrases and stuff like that would have like made the larger society scared of them more. Because that's like what fueled a lot of like the counter ideology and propaganda against the Black Panthers, I think, is, you know, with racism as well. And, like, and even, even prior to this, Dr. King and Malcolm X were both like under police surveillance and FBI surveillance. Yeah. Actually, and, I don't know if Malcolm was under FBI. I know he was surveyed by the Newark Police Department. Yeah, Malcolm was definitely sur- surveilled too. Uh, Martin Luther King actually had like an ac- economic component to a lot of what he was talking about that we don't hear today. Because usually whenever there's a revolution, the power structure co-ops some of the ideology of it. Mm-hmm. So MLK has been like lessened. But his ideology was like he, wanted, he was pro-unionization. And around this time in the 60s, as today, there was an idea of universal basic income yeah. instead of all these like stupid programs like the war on poverty stuff, like welfare and all that kind of stuff. So Martin Luther King spoke out for a universal basic income, which actually put him on the same side as uh, Milton Friedman, the like radical conservative economics professor. And he actually, when he was shot in Tennessee, he was speaking out for uh, the unionization of sanitation workers in Tennessee. Let's get into a, a couple of the um, things that went on. When you join a certain party, you're going to have to make a couple protests here and there. And one day the young lords which are um, mostly Puerto Ricans, were in the middle of occupying a police community workshop meeting as the police gathered on the second floor of the Chicago 19th District Police Station. Fred and Jose Chacha Jimenez, the leader of the Young Lords, led a peaceful protest. It was peaceful, dude. The Young Lords were predominantly Puerto Rican, like you said, but they... they were actually for like uh, Puerto Rican independence from the United States. And they fought for like moving military bases off Puerto Rico and stuff like that during the Cold War. Can't have that. Yeah, because they, well, they, you don't want to be a target of the Soviets too. Like, yeah. <laughs> nuke everybody else, just leave our island alone. Well, <laughs> we don't the, have anything here. <laughs> the peaceful protest? No, we can't have it. Both of them were arrested. Charged with mob action during a peaceful protest. Word spread of the arrest and the Rainbow Coalition, the Students for Democratic Society, the Brown Berets, and the Red Guard Party got there as fast as they could. Now we're talking about like Chinese Americans, Chicano, and the the Students for Democratic Society was an activist organization. Uh, and a lot of these groups are under the umbrella of, of, this movement was called like the New Left, and it was a lot of like animal rights activists, uh, Pan-Africanist. Uh, what does that mean when people say that? Pan-African? Yeah, like I know Pan-Hellenic. So Pan-African is an idea that no matter where you are, if you're of African descent, you should kind of try to uplift each other. Okay. Like, it's uh, Marcus Garvey started. He's a uh, Jamaican. So a Pan-Hellenic movement will be all of Greece under one under one cause. Sometimes it drifts into nationalism. So okay. some would say like a Pan-Irish thing would be like uniting Ireland and getting rid of the Protestants. In the okay. Sometimes it goes bad, but... Uh, Pan-Africanism kind of morphed into like the African Union today, so I kind of think it's a force for good. Mm. So it's been, it's been helpful. But no one even knew that the Rainbow Coalition was a real thing until Fred Hampton got up and he, I think it was during a speech where he said like, yes, we are the Rainbow Coalition. And then everyone went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> now Reverend Jesse Jackson loved this shit. 
He even made his own rainbow slash push coalition. Uh, that was after that. Yeah, that was around like his time he ran for president. Yeah, and I think he ran against Biden too. Like a lot of this stuff's repeated today, like the Good universal basic Biden. income and everything. Now Fred was such a leader and a hero. He gave some of his best speeches people have ever heard. Weekly rallies, teaching people at 6 a.m. every morning, and setting up the police supervision project were so detailed he was easy to get behind. Like people were, he could gather thousands. Yeah, and he like, kind of right away. He kind of learned this at the NAW. Wait. NAACP. I screwed up See? every time. See? <laughs> I hate acronyms, even though it it's is, in the military. I, it is hard. Um, he learned that with them because they, like, they teach their new, um, I, I don't know what the word is, but, like, their new people who join organization, they teach them how to organize. Inductees. Oh, organizers. Yeah. Recruit. Yeah, so he got, like, the basics from that. Organizationizers? Organizers. Yeah, organizers. I, know. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Groups began to be targeted by a little thing called Cointelpro. It was a series of convert and illegal projects conducted by the FBI. Now, this whole thing is just a fucking mess, dude. This yeah. Cointelpro, is that how you say it? Yeah, it means a counterintelligence. I forget what the pros for. So that's a whole acronym, that whole yeah. thing? And it was a program by the FBI from like 1956 to 1971. And it predominantly went after leftist groups and black nationalist organizations they didn't start going after the kkk till five years later in 64 and what the, f the main thing they did was they would withhold evidence in some cases uh perjury produce would they plant evidence too like they produce like fake documents sometimes like they would smear people who would support the black panther party there was an actress who was french but she was famous here in the 60s yeah and she actually killed herself and a lot of people believe that like this smear campaign they did ruined led her, her to kill life. herself yeah because it ruined her professional life and this fucking guys and i didn't even know this shit like this thing was happening especially with hoover behind this shit yeah he wasn't he was at, he was later right where he yeah. came in he wasn't an outright seg segregationist, but he didn't like the idea of poor blacks and poor whites organizing together. Well, yeah, he thought it was going to be dangerous for the government. He thought they were going to overthrow the government. He was very yeah. much a Red Scare guy. And that's yeah. just my opinion from reading the stuff. Other people can read the same thing and think that he's yeah, a there's a whole different ardent segregationist. But I think Hoover was all behind this shit, that motherfucking piece of <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, he, he got intel on MLK that he was having affairs, and like he dangled it and was like, I'll release it. <laughs> if you don't kill yourself he actually sent him a letter like this is documented he, they the fbi sent him a letter and said you should kill yourself oh i can't wait to do hoover <laughs> now we no one knew about this shit the fbi was doing this program until a small group of people from the citizens commission of human rights broke into a small fbi office in media pa that's crazy delco I go there. They're right here. <laughs> yeah, I go to there all the time. And stealing over a thousand documents, their objective was to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and neutralize African American organizations. And they actively tried to split up the Rainbow Coalition. They would produce like uh, flyers. And yeah, they would the, say the they would say the one of the other groups did it, and it would like have racist cartoons on the other yeah. side. <laughs> 
We'll uh, mm-hmm. we'll get into that later. I'm sure, yeah. or maybe not. I, no, I, it is. It is. But like the oh. FBI actively <laughs> like would inform people that there was hit out hits out on them from yeah. uh, members of their own party. Now Hampton was in line to become the party's central committee's chief of staff. It would have been a rise of the ages, but on the morning of December fourth, nineteen sixty nine. Fred Hampton's apartment was raided by a tactical unit. The cops said it was all for the city's own protection. Uh, Now, we're jumping back to when the FBI started their investigation on Fred. Now, we said it. Hoover was going to do anything to prevent a formation of a cohesive black movement. Now, two years before the raid in 67, they opened a file on Fred, labeled a key militant figure and placed on the agitator index. Something had to be done about this threat. Now, the agitator index. Who else was on that list? Oh, MLK. No, he wasn't an agitator. That was what the segregationists <laughs> call him. They call him an outside mm-hmm. agitator. That was like their like code for like uh, Jews and uh, African Americans uh, coming I should, down. I wonder who else was on that. Like a, how many people? They probably had so many. Probably people. thousands. Yeah. Like I heard of like other prominent people around this time would joke like, "Oh, you're gonna be on Edgar's list for that." Like yeah. if someone said <laughs> something like a slight against them or something. You're an agitator. This is where it gets insane. A man named William O'Neill, was arrested twice for interstate car theft. The FBI promised to wipe his slate clean if he was willing to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. And the the irony is he had an old charge for impersonating a federal law enforcement official. And this guy... William O'Neill, like, it was way before this, but he had a charge for impersonating, like, an FBI agent. And William O'Neill is who uh, Forrest Gump is loosely based on. (laughs) What? He was quoted as saying, I'm sorry, I ruined your Black Panther party. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm fucking around. You promised no jokes. Oh, man. Now, (laughs) O'Neill... O'Neill made himself right at home. He kicked his feet up and worked his way right up the ranks. He was named director of chapter security and even became the personal bodyguard of Fred Hampton. This whole time, the FBI's tapping Fred's mom's phones. They're watching him. They send this fuck in to go, do, to go uh, invade him. And one time, a special agent in San Fran sent Hoover a letter explaining how the Black Panthers were handing out food to children in the mornings. And Hoover told this agent that his career would be destroyed if he didn't start gathering the right intel to prove that the party was a violent organization. So they're sending William O'Neill in. If he's talking about giving out food to poor people, he's catching them charges himself. So he better come up with something. And it... It's kind of good now that we don't allow this to happen anymore because Edgar Hoover was, like, left to his own devices and then, like, pretty much became, like, a little di- dictator of this fucking agency. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, uh, you're a 10-year appointment by the president, and that's it. Like, after your 10 years are done, you're out. Yeah. So, the 10... They try to pick, like, not really strongly partisan people. Like, Comey is right-leaning, but he wasn't overtly Republican. Mm-hmm. So, they try to pick people that are nonpartisan for that position now. 
and there's a culture in the FBI to not go too far like Edgar did. Mm-hmm. Edgar went way too far, dude. Like if you listen, especially when he was alone in his house, <laughs> cross <laughs> cross dressing <laughs> reportedly, supposedly, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. Myth. All right, well, worming his fucking way around, snitch ass O'Neill was trying to drive a wedge in between the party and their allies. One of the FBI's great ideas was to release a cartoon in the paper like we talked about <laughs> earlier. And these these fucking drawings were like depicting white activists as a bunch of idiots. So they're trying to split them from the uh, the Democratic group. Yeah, so you were talking about the, the Democratic Student Union. Yeah. Or the Student for Democratic Society. They had a more militant wing called the Weather Underground. Yeah, where well, I'm getting to that. Okay, bit. but Stop fucking ruining my script. <laughs> but Fred Hampton didn't really like them, but he liked the young patriots and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, O'Neill put it in a record that he had found out where the party was stocking all their weapons. Located in a four and a half bedroom apartment, two three three seven West Monroe Street. Hampton and his pregnant girlfriend, Deborah Johnson. Well, actually, I think it was his fiance. I can't believe he just doxed him. What? <laughs> Doxing somebody, like, giving out their address? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> where it went down. Girlfriend, uh, Deborah Johnson, only moved, they both moved to be closer to the party headquarters. Now, Fred was very busy at this time. He even flew out to speak at UCLA to talk to uh, at the uh, Law Students Association, and that's where he was offered the job chief of staff for the party. Now, while out in Cali, a gunfight occurred between the Panthers and the police. Two officers were dead, John J. Gilhooley and Frank G. Rappaport, and another nine were wounded. One of the Panthers, Spurgeon Winter Jr., was also killed. These are great aliases. I know. (laughs) Someone had to go down for this bullshit, and it damn sure wasn't going to be the cops. Lawrence S. Bell of the Black Panther Party was charged with first-degree murder. So that's what was going on while he was... He was on vacation, (laughs) (laughs) and this, all this, I mean, the bloodshed, dude, was going down. It kind of sucks for both the police and the Black Panther Party because they're being judged by the largest society sometimes, but they're, like, the worst actors. Mm -hmm. 90% of them were probably just handing out food, and it was just some of them were acting this way, like, they ambushed the cops, and... Not all the cops were bad either. So like, yeah, it's like one person does something and then you're just yeah. You're all... You shouldn't label the whole group for one actor or mm. a percentage of them. And uh, in '68, Fred was on the verge of combining the party with a Southside Street Gang, which would have doubled the party's numbers that time. But with all the death in the streets, the Special Prosecutions Unit was prompted to execute a search for the gun stash in his apartment. O'Neill fucked this whole thing off, dude. Gave away the stash. Yes, he did. <laughs> God damn it. Now, the, this, is, this is crazy. The night before the raid, Hampton was teaching a political education course at a local church. After the class, ten Panthers were headed back to his apartment to get some shut-eye. When they got there, fuckboy O'Neill 
was waiting and had prepared a late night dinner for everyone. Imagine walking in. This dude's got like <laughs> 10 plates set up. He's like, ooh, welcome. Straight up Last Supper shit. Are you hungry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How shady was he that night when they walked in? And he weaseled himself into me and like the head of the security too. So like he yeah. was positioned to be the ultimate Judas. Oh, dude, I, I wish I could see what he, what he was acting like that night. You're real sweaty. Ah, cooking. It's hot in there. <laughs> Now, dumb fuck O'Neal slipped a barbiturate into Fred's drink. Hey. And around 1.30 <laughs> a.m., he passed out mid-sentence, and his face drooped below. Now, what's a barbiturate? Uh, phenobarbital. So it's it'll put you to sleep, right? It's yeah. a tranquilizer, yeah. Holy shit. I like how everyone just looked at me for the drug advice. <laughs> like, what's this drug? Now, like... I know, like, the sedatives and stuff, but I didn't know what a barbiturate was yeah, either. Yeah, no, barbiturates <laughs> really went down the face. I believe quaaludes were barbiturates, and that was kind yeah, of uh, the beginning and, and the end for them because, like, how many people were combining quaaludes with alcohol and dying? Uh, yeah, barbiturates have really gone out of phase and are primarily used for detoxing. Oh. So every all the Panthers are in the house, just ate a fine meal. Now we got barbiturates in the drinks. I think no. I think he only put it in Fred's drink, actually. So the rest of them go to sleep. Now Mark Clark, a fellow Panther, was put on security duty that night. He grabbed a chair, set it up near the front door of the apartment. At, at 4 a.m., two tactical units approached the building. Eight men through the front and eight through the back. And at 4:45 a.m. The officers were right outside the front door. Boom! They kicked the door down, shot Mark Clark multiple times in the chest. While his body was reacting to his own death, his fingers grasped the shotgun and fired the only shot by a panther that night. One shot, dude. The cops literally shot a hundred times in that house, that in that apartment that night. Uh, that, this always bothers me. Like, I'm not gonna, like, obviously, like, the motivations are fucked up. It's to end, like, a, essentially a black empowerment movement. They yeah. had shed a lot of the, the racist beliefs of Mal- Malcolm at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like, like, uh, Sean alluded to, they're doing great work in the community. But, like, what you do during a gunfight, regardless of what, what happens, like, and especially, like, you're going, your spears have told you there's guns in the house, there's guns in the house, yeah. there's fucking guns in the house. Like, I... I don't think you can really hold someone accountable unless you've been in something remotely similar. Are you talking about the cops aren't to blame for that? I'm not saying they're not to blame. I'm just saying we can't judge their reaction so harshly because, like, okay, so um, I forget what the instance was. It was recently. It was, no, it was a while ago, actually. But, like, I, I just remember, like, always thinking, like, what if this happens? What if this happens? And it actually happened to me, and I completely fucking froze. And, well, I mean, he was sleeping. For the police side, you have to remember that, like, not everybody's discharge their weapon mm-hmm. I, I i have friends and family that are cops and not many of them discharge their weapons it's it's not been that often and they're not like military trained they're not as competent as someone in the military like it's not uncommon for police to have friendly fire too because mm-hmm. they don't practice like line discipline when you're firing and i mean they kind of shouldn't be treated like the military either they shouldn't be trained at that level yeah. but like they should have like comparable gun safety and tactics so yeah, not not that they're not to blame, but we can't judge them as like specifically their actions. 
Like well, shooting a hundred bullets is well, not like that's a lot of bullets. It is a fuck they ton went of bullets. Overboard and well, no well, one shot back. That's actually, it's really not. Yeah. Would you say there were sixteen people total? Eight in the back, eight in the front. Yeah, that's yeah. sixteen people. That's only what fucking six shots per guy. Yeah, but well, they no, definitely reloaded. No one else has a gun on them. Well, Glock can hold like fourteen. I don't know yeah. what, exactly what they were armed with. Oh, uh, they were on. I think it was automatics. They had automatics too. Yeah. A lot of police forces at this time had, like, revolvers, so those are, like, six to eight shots. And then shotguns, I think, I read they hold around so, I the same. I read somewhere that they had automatic. Yo, they could have, yeah. I this is know. a tactical team, and the FBI's with them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm raid. not sure exactly what they had. but So you come in, you shoot this guy in the chest twice. He shoots his shotgun, like, at the ground. Asleep in the other room, Hampton was lying face down on his bed. He didn't even budge, dude. Yeah. Shots Did you see fired. the pictures? Yeah. They, like, dragged him out of the bed yeah. and stuff. Oh, they drug everyone out. And his pregnant fiance was right next to him. A stray bullet had already hit him in the shoulder from the, from the other shots. And Panther Harold Bell reported hearing the police talking about it. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. He's good and dead now. Now the two shots were fired point blank into Fred's head. The officers turned their guns to other Panthers, spraying bullets everywhere. Most of them were seriously wounded. One by one, they started dragging the bodies outside all of them were arrested and charged with attempted murder and had their bail set to $100,000. The dead people? Yep. I'm... If you were dead or alive, your bail is 100000 I'm not a lawyer, but wouldn't you need, like, a gun in your possession or, like, a tool to actually... Like, if you're getting charged with attempted murder, wouldn't you need something on your body yeah, to so actually so, enact no, a murder? Not, <laughs> so far, the only guy that, like, seems to have had a gun in the story is the very first guy yeah. with the shotgun. No, yeah. he's the only one who had a gun, like, in his hands just for security. Yeah. And he just was sleeping when he got shot. They had no warning. I think they just booted the door in. Hmm. And, yep, dragging people out that were dying, uh, blood everywhere. And I bet you were all wondering if... Deborah Johnson's baby was okay. So was I when I was doing this. And Fred's fiance was removed from the room before the cops fired the two fatal shots. So they drug her out. They're talking. Boom, boom. He never wakes up and two shots in the head. During the trial, the Chicago Police Department tried saying that the Panthers fired the first shot, and in self-defense, the cops shot a hundred times. This case didn't stick, and all the charges were dropped. Charges against the dead people or against the police? Against the, the dead people. Everyone. All charges were dropped. Well, that's really good they dropped the charges against <laughs> the dead people. <laughs> yeah. No one got been... charged. And, and it gets even weirder, dude, because... All right, so... At the funeral, 5,000 people showed up to Fred's funeral. People like Jesse Jackson and Ralph Abernathy, that, who was uh, MLK's successor. There was a group called the Weather Underground, which you talked about earlier. They were mm-hmm. a black power group from the University of Michigan. Decided to get some revenge. 
So they destroyed a bunch of police vehicles in Chicago. Yeah, they also declared war generally on the United States government. The Weather Underground did. They sent like a declaration of war against the U.S. government after Fred was killed. How many people did they have? Uh, I think they had like 40 core members and they were predominantly white. Like their membership was open to anyone, but I've only seen pictures of white members. Yeah. So I don't know for sure what, so what their a, makeup was. but They were a white black power group? Well, no, they were part of the new left, so they were broadly like animal rights, environmentalism, well, black I power. I read that they were a black power. Group. Today they would be considered woke. Yes. Hell yes. yeah. I don't want to draw a direct comparison, but they kind of seemed like some of the Antifa. Antifa yeah. But like uh, Fred didn't like these this group because he thought they were way too violent. Like, he was more for self-defense. Like, I'm going to carry weapons to defend yeah, myself. Fred was about the law, dude. The Weather Underground, I don't know if Fred knew about this, but they were planning to bomb Fort Dix that was having, like, a dance for, like, some of the troops. Dumb. And it's dumb, dude. The Weather Underground actually wanted to kill people. They they did bombings. They bombed the Pentagon. They bombed the, the Capitol building. That's and crazy. they bombed places in New York, Chicago... And they did kill a few people, and they, they committed bank robberies, and they kidnapped a woman. What the fuck? Yeah, so th they, not many people know about it, but in, in the 60s, and late 60s, early 70s, the Weather Underground were, like, a pretty prominent domestic terrorist group. That's crazy. Now, the war wasn't just in the streets. Two newspapers went to battle with the ink. The Chicago Tribune took the cop's side, Posting pictures provided by Hanoran, who was the cop who, like, set up the raid, kind yeah. of. Yeah. And the pic showed uh, supposed bullet holes from the Panthers' guns. That's a limitation of, like, forensic science. You can't tell the succession of when the guns went off, and you can't tell is this hole coming in or out sometimes. They just took rant, dude. They, they didn't even lock it off as a crime scene. Yeah. Like the bit, like the apartment, it's insane. Nothing. They just drag the bodies out, leave it open. Anyone can go in there. Yeah, ob objectively, from someone who's just reading the facts of the incident, it does look like the cops kind of planned it because they knew he got. Bur they they made O'Neill do the barbiturates to knock them out. Yeah, they knew just that. that enough. They forced him to do just that. Just that is enough. And then, how is this not a case? Fred got shot on the bed. Like, that's not really. He wasn't standing in the doorway like that would be indicative of someone like actually being an aggressor mm. and then they didn't rope it off so obviously they were like oh there's nothing to investigate here well here's the guy who fucking just went in the apartment um he was from wright college news in chicago jack chalm was allowed into the hampton house to take pictures because it was never considered a crime scene Chalum's photos uh, showed the opposite of those posted in the Tribune. When Chalum woke up and saw what had been released, he contacted the Chicago Sun-Times to tell them the, his side of the story. The bullet holes depicted by the cops turned out to just be nail heads in the wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like, I mean, I was reading other stuff where this is like a whole conspiracy yeah. Like, who was right and who did what, and there's like so many different things. But for me, researching, I'm, I'm not believing the cops. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally suspicious of most things, and I, would, I came to the same conclusion. 
And then Coin Intel Pro, there's actually evidence. There's there's thousands of documents, and you can even find the documents leaked from the uh, the media PA burglary. So it was all published. It's all out there. Is that office still there? No, no. no media doesn't have an office. Uh, the it got moved to Philadelphia, the FBI regional Should office. Should we try breaking in? Oh fuck! Whoa, chill, chill, <laughs> chill. No, <laughs> we need those documents. I know you have proof of Fred Hampton's murder. FBI, that's Mike talking. Yes, that's... Um, I'm chilling. <laughs> that's not me. You can you can spy on me playing video games. Satire. So the the government does release most of their documents every 25 years. After 25 years, most things become uh, redacted and published. Well, I'm gonna get those documents. So our government, no matter what, our government now is radically different than now in my estimation, because mm. they actually do release most of this shit. There's still WikiLeaks and stuff they hide, but they release most things. Yeah. I forgot where I was going, but... <laughs> It'd be like that. Well, just four weeks after the brutal murder of Fred Hampton, Deborah Johnson gave birth to Fred Hampton Jr. In 1990, FBI informant William O'Neill committed suicide after coming clean about his part in the raid. Now, after decades of trying to sue the government for their crimes, in 1982, the city of Chicago, Cook County, reached a $1.85 million settlement, the largest civil rights settlement ever at that time. Hampton and Clark's mothers were two of the nine plaintiffs, and they received six hundred and sixteen thousand dollars each in most cases uh like when there's a civil rights violation and a city municipality or police department sued they have insurance plans to pay out for that so the city doesn't feel the burden except for like upkeeping the insurance plan so it's not really like taxpayer dollars going sometimes yeah it's not all the time but it took so long to reach that settlement yeah, and it's kind of a double-edged sword because if it is taxpayer money they're losing and the the city and the police are held to, like, more of account, that's our money getting distributed when they fuck up. Well, at first they wanted, like, $47 million Yeah. When they first tried to get it. When they have these insurance plans, there's actually, like, they don't have as much incentive to not do this shit anymore or, like, violate somebody's civil rights. So I- I'm kind of conflicted on where I would go with that whether it be taxpayer dollars or they have insurance plans, because I think the insurance plans makes it insulates them a little bit from their wrongdoing. Researching this, I wanted to play it down the middle. I wanted to be a fair guy. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be a man people could see as a, a straight arrow. <laughs> we get it, you're straight. <laughs> and I'm, I'm leaning. I'm leaning on to the Black Panther Party side because yeah. this stuff, I don't know how you get away with no one being charged for uh, drugging someone Yeah, when you have proof of it now. I don't know when that actually... Did that come out when they broke in the office or did the, the William O'Neill stuff come oh, out Oh, I think later? William O'Neill came clean. He came clean later. Yeah. The, the thing in media was kind of just the general coin intel pro. Yeah, the, what they were trying the to do. The program itself. So I'm I'm leaning. And I don't... It's it's hard because when people take a side, they go extreme. Yeah, I don't like that. And that just makes everything worse. Because mm-hmm. yeah. now we're just killing each other. Uh, but, I mean, back then, it's you had to do something. Because it was so bad that you were just stuck in the streets. 
Yeah. yeah, like like everything, there's two sides of the coin. The yeah. government did actively pursue black activists during this time, and we didn't go into the full story of the Black Panthers, but they that will mm-hmm. eventually devolve into chaos and hits mm-hmm. being taken out on different yeah. members, encouraged again by the government also playing a part. But like, yeah. you know, you can get all the encouragement you want; it doesn't make you give you the right to kill someone. Yeah, maybe we'll get into like a little side episode on the Black Panthers and what happened after that mm-hmm. and. The They've kind of, of splintered time. into a lot of groups today. Mm. This party's kind of been fractured. Like, uh, I think Seal's still around. Bobby Seal, I think he lives in Texas now. Or California. But he's, he's still around. He does, like, speeches. Yeah. And he kind of likes to stick to the original ideas. Cause, the 10 points? Yeah. He's, he's still preaching about that today. Well, this has been fun. Yeah. This has well, been yeah. really fun. That's what I wanted to do. It's such a complicated story, and... It's it's not many people know about it. I didn't it. know about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought I knew the Black Panthers were just a violent group. Yeah. That's all I was taught. There's so much nuance to it. And as I was reading, I was just switching to the other side. I only knew that they yelled at uh mentally disabled people that were trying to get their girlfriend back. That was just <laughs> no, you just got that from the fake cartoon that was drawn. Oh, uh the documentary Forrest Gump. <laughs> the Black Panthers in the uh seventies played a big role in the uh Americans with Disabilities Act getting passed. Yeah? Yeah, because actually in the 70s, a group of disabled people took over a federal building in San Francisco. I think it's called the 501. I have a lot of questions. Sit in. (laughs) So they helped them, the people in the wheelchairs, get up into the place because it wasn't wheelchair accessible. What Mm. the? So they were actually carrying, you can see it. it, There's like clips on YouTube. They carried the people into the building and then fed them through the whole protest, which I think was like a couple of months. So like oh. they they also helped with that too like so when you say took over you mean occupied yeah yeah they just okay. they just sat in a building was, I, I had questions about it was this completely takeover. nonviolent it was, okay. it was civil disobedience it was so do we have any like closing remarks on Fred Hampton Black Pat he he there's a lot of clips on YouTube of him giving speeches and yeah. he's in court and stuff you I, want you I actually, all take turns yeah I'll st- Sean go I I actually found out about him because like. I would hear about a, his name in punk songs, actually, randomly. What? Yeah. There's Wait, a, like, what, what, ra- what punk song? There's a lot of well, crossover. There's a group called Ramshackle Glory. They're like more of like a folk punk band, and they have a song like, Freedom Doesn't Come From a Police Officer's Gun, and I'm Not Going Out Like Fred Hampton. Like, Interesting. Yeah. I'm learning more about you every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, like, he, he's mentioned a lot in rap lyrics, but that's how I learned from him, like, from yeah, punk, I never, punk music. Yeah, I never heard of him. If they don't seem like a mentally unstable person and like they say the government's going after them, it yeah. may be more true. <laughs> it may be more true than false. Nice. Yeah, sometimes there's a grain of truth in there. Big grains. <laughs> whole, whole sack of grains. Guys, remember to uh, rate and review us. This has been Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. I'm Mike Bonomo. That's Sean Kleins. That's Brian Davies. Night, night. <laughs> this is Fight the Fate. Thanks for listening. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pig. The people are going to have to stand up against the pig. That's what the pastors are doing. That's what the pastors are doing all over the world.